This podcast contains adult themes and some strong language. Who says online users are a bunch of anti-social geeks? The internet can be a pretty intimidating place for the new user. Turning on your home computer to read the day's newspaper, well, it's not as far-fetched as it may seem. It incites perverted minds. Are you Am I a pro? Take, for example, fraping, where you're raped on Facebook. Trolls. <laughs> Fine, because I've got 8,000 people now watching my live. Hello, I'm Endo O'Dowd, and this is Web 1.0, a podcast series from the Irish Times that looks at arguments and innovations of the early internet. Everything we see today is seen through the prism of online networks, but I'm trying to look back at the origins of these networks and the stories of the people who helped create them. In this episode, we look at the origins of AI chatbots and how they dovetail into an early online troll. These 11 people will be spending 24 hours together in this studio during the next three days. Nine are from Belfast. Two are from the United States. This is the opening of a 1972 film made by the American psychologist Carl Rogers. The film is based around a conversation between people on opposing sides of a bloody sectarian war in Northern Ireland. This war would go on to scar the people of Ireland for generations to come. Tonight's rioting and shooting in Belfast was the climax of a violent weekend in the province. Much of tonight's troubles were along the so-called peace line, which separates the Catholic and Protestant communities. Rogers felt his therapy methods could help people move beyond their differences and talked with paramilitaries to bring different members of the divided community together. Little by little they began to understand each other, sometimes dramatically so. Uh, One Protestant man said uh, toward the end that he really pitied this Catholic mother trying to deal with her boys that he, he thought she was in a worse situation than he was mm-hmm. and showed real understanding. That had to be cut out of the film for fear he would be shot when he got mm. back to Belfast. Roger's methods had a remarkable impact and the film he made is called The Steel Shutter. It's on YouTube today. But in 1972, the film and Roger's breakthrough were not well received by the paramilitaries. Four copies of that film were destroyed by paramilitary forces, some mm-hmm. by Catholic paramilitary, some by Protestant paramilitary, until they realized they should never let the film out of their eyesight. They had to really protect their copies of the film. By now, Roger's methods hadn't just spooked paramilitaries in Northern Ireland. By the 1970s, they'd already upended computer science and inspired the first AI chatbots. For all this, these methods were quite simple. They were about advice and not given any. If advice would help, no one would ever come to a counsellor because they would already have had plenty of good advice. In essence, Roger's theory as a therapist was advice alone couldn't help people. They could get advice anywhere. Boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, parents, siblings, friends or colleagues. Rogers tried to create a practice and environment where clients could come to realise their own issues by using a method that often restated their answers back to them. The most valuable kind of help I can give is the kind of 
psychological climate or psychological atmosphere that I can create. Carl Rogers' ideas would have a wide-ranging impact, and though he designed them to mitigate conflict, in the year of his death in 1987, a student in University College Dublin would use them to exasperate conflict. As I say, I don't mind an argument. You believe in this, I believe in that. Let's argue. We'll argue for hours, days, years. In the same year of Roger's death, Mark Humphreys was studying computer programming. It was a different time in many regards to today. For one thing, the internet, as we know it, didn't exist. Now, there weren't a lot of people online at this point. You could send email, that was the easiest bit to use. But there were people chatting with real-time chat, now typing, you know. So, I mean, same as today in some ways. It's just you couldn't send a picture, uh, there was no audio. It was a text-based network. Today, Dr. Mark Humphreys is an assistant professor in computing in Dublin City University. In college, Mark was on BitNet, a university programme network founded in 1981. It wasn't in the media, of course. The media weren't covering the, you know, didn't know it existed. So it was actually a fellow undergraduate who introduced me to the internet. And every single person he chatted to was in IT. It was, there weren't a lot of people. And from those online, it was a very male-dominated space. We were always in search of a single female to uh, appear on the network. <laughs> it, it just never happened. I don't think I ever chatted to a female in those couple of years of, of chatting. We'll get back to gender breakdowns in a later episode. I wanted to talk to Mark about artificial intelligence. In second year, which is 1986-87, I did an AI module and it had already been 20 years since Weizenbaum's ELISA program. Joseph Weizenbaum was a computer scientist who fled the Nazis in 1936. And 30 years later, in 1966, he developed a program called ELISA. ELISA is a computer program that anyone can converse with via the keyboard and it'll reply on the screen. The ELISA of Weizenbaum's AI program was named after the ELISA Doolittle character in George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion. Doesn't it occur to you, Higgins, that the girl has some feelings? Oh, I don't think so. Have you, Eliza? I got my feelings the same as anyone else. See the difficulty, Pickering? What difficulty? To get her to talk grammar. In the play, the character is a working-class woman with a fiery temper and vulgar language, who is trained by two men to pass for a lady of the upper classes. Eliza, you're a fool. That's not a proper answer to give me. If you can't stand the coldness of my sort of life and the strain of it, go back to the gutter. Oh, it's a fine life, the life of the gutter. It's real, it's warm, it's violent. Not like science and literature and classical music and philosophy and art. To make the Eliza chatbot responses effective, Weizenbaum mimicked the techniques of Carl Rogers by taking key words from sentences and returning them to the user as an open-ended response or question. We've added human speech to make the conversation more clear. Men are all alike. In what way? They're always bugging us about something or other. Can you think of a specific example? Well, my boyfriend made me come here. Your boyfriend made you come here? He says um, I'm depressed much of the time. I'm sorry to hear that you're depressed. It's true. I am unhappy. Do you think coming here will help you not to be unhappy? Weizenbaum, though, was quickly spooked by people's susceptibility to the programme. And I asked her to my office and sat her down at the keyboard and, and she began to type. And of course, I looked over her shoulder to make sure that everything was operating properly. 
After two or three interchanges with the, with the machine, she turned to me and she said, would you mind leaving the room, please? Wiseman's own family balked at this anecdote. In a 2019 interview, his daughter, Miriam Wiseman, said that it was, quote, soaked in arrogance and highlighted her father's blind spot for human needs. But the ELISA program remained extremely popular in AI into the 1980s. And in 1987, in Dublin's UCD, Mark Humphreys was asked to create a version of the program for a college module. In my UCD lecture, set for us in our AI module to just make an ELISA program. And I wrote one that was rude and aggressive and as random as would declare that it didn't believe you and uh, that you were are, are, um, an asshole. An asshole is one of its words. And so Mark Humphreys designed MGONs. And whereas Eliza was an empathy-based chatbot inspired by Carl Rogers' person-centered psychotherapy, MGONs flipped those techniques and was what we would now call a troll. But to be a truly effective troll, it needed some element of surprise. The right person was never going to come along in my class because my class all knew what it was because they'd been writing Eliza programs. So they so they they chat to it for a while and they got that's funny, yeah, and then they'd walk away. Later that year, somebody discovered this program called ChatDisk. The idea of ChatDisk was you could leave a program to handle chat messages, and you could insert any code in there. So. In a time before ubiquitous mobile phones, this chat disk program allowed people to leave automatic replies, similar to out-of-office replies we have today. But what Mark Humphreys quickly realised was he could upload MGONs to deliver the replies. So the, the penny drops that I can stick MGONs in there and that it can reply to chat messages. I think it was the first chatbot on the internet in the world that had an element of surprise that nobody knew was a chatbot. And so MGONs, a chatbot troll, was unleashed onto the internet. But to better understand online interactions of the time and how trolls were kept in line, I wanted to talk to Brad Templeton, who was a pivotal figure in the early internet. I can, with some pride, point to having created the first international links between two countries, between Canada and the United States. The first link was created. Templeton was the creator of the dot in dot com and was responsible for one of the first online businesses on the internet. In the 1980s, Templeton was one of the central creators of Netiquette, which were recommendations or rules of etiquette for the internet. People were always coming new to the system, right? Because it was growing. And so there were always, every day, many people who had never used it before, uh, who didn't know what the norms were. And so you needed ways to help people get sort of aware, okay, here's how you behave in this new place. Just, you know, how not to look stupid and how not to be bad and how not to be too disruptive. People wrote up rules of that. Um, yes, I wrote up... Uh, a few articles about that, one satirical, one some less satirical. Some examples from the time of Netiquette would be, as in other environments, it is wise to listen first to get to know the culture of the group. It is not necessary to greet everyone on the channel or group personally. Usually one hello or equivalent 
is enough. Don't assume that people who don't know you will want to talk to you. Don't badger some users for personal information, such as sex, age or location. If you've posted something and don't see it immediately, don't assume that it's failed and repost it. Read all the discussion in the progress. We call this a thread before posting replies. And if you discover an error in the post, cancel it as soon as possible. At one point every year, there was an influx and these netiquette rules were tested. September, when we had all the universities, was the time where the most new people would come. Because what would happen is everybody would arrive at university, they'd be, you know, get their uh, computer account for the first time, they'd be online for the first time in their lives, and so suddenly they'd be exposed and you'd get a whole flood of people repeating mistakes and doing things people didn't like. And then at some point, though, the flood came, not a trickle, but a, a constant flow. And so we talked about how it was September forever. September forever, or eternal September, became internet slang for a period that began around 1993. But this was years after Mark Humphreys had uploaded MGONs, and posters would have expected some elements of netiquette. And in May 1989, someone from Drake University in Iowa logged on to Usenet and tried to contact Mark Humphreys. Mark's foul-mouthed, antagonistic, troll of a chatbot, MGONs, took over. Almost from the word go, my program is rude to him and he gets derailed from whatever he was going to say. Uh, one of its standard responses, uh, Jesus, who let you near me go away? From what you can see in the conversation, he just never, never figures it out. How long did the conversation go on for? Uh, so, so this guy talked to it for an hour and a half. Now, I don't think that reflects badly on his detective skills because, uh, you know, there, there just were no chatbots. But, but detective skills aside, your program says you're an asshole to him 17 times. Does it? Yes. <laughs> it's just relentless abuse that he suffers. But why do you think that? <laughs> he, does, he does get a lot of abuse, it's true. Uh, he hurls lots of abuse, but the, the problem is, of course, he can't hurt my uh, program. It's just completely impervious, so there's literally nothing he can say to upset my program. But whatever about the, the, the jump in technology, like people would still kind of think, well, how in God's name would you end up in an argument with a program for an hour and a half? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. Why, why do you think that that person remained engaged? Well, I suppose the thing is, because this is his first time ever encountering, it's probably your first time ever encountering a rude person on the internet. So who knows how you'll behave, you know? In those days, someone questioning your sex life and your manhood. That would be something that would never happen to anybody, you know? I never saw any talk like that on the internet. That would just not ever happen. The internet definitely got wilder after this time. It was a more peaceful place. It's important to keep in mind that this was a time where people struggled to get a phone line, never mind an internet connection. So, if you were online, you were expecting to interact with academics, not trolls. At times, the person from Drake University did seem to grasp that something was amiss about MGONs, but was pulled back in for more abuse. He said, are there two people on your username? And due more or less to a bug, there, the word there, <laughs> matched a list of sex words, <laughs> okay? And it responded with, when was the last time you had sex? And he's off. He just takes that and runs with it. 
And, and then he keeps talking about sex, and my machine keeps talking about sex, and all the sex words are triggered, and it never ends. And it says, okay, honestly, when was the last time you got laid? And he says, I told you it was yesterday, and my program replies, you were obviously an asshole, <laughs> right? Which is, again, one of its standard answers when it has no idea what you're talking about. Then later, again, 20 minutes later or something, my program goes, okay, honestly, when was the last time you got laid? And he goes, okay, okay, it was over 24 hours ago. For you, it must have been 20 years. And my program replies, what do you mean, okay, it's not okay at all? <laughs> so he's actually lied, and he admittedly lied. But, uh, so, so this guy talked to it for an hour and a half. Did you know about the Turing tests? Oh, or? yeah. Oh, yeah, everybody knew about the Turing test. And... Probably, that would have been part of our AI module, certainly. I propose to consider the question, can machines think? Were the opening lines to computer scientist Alan Turin's 1950 paper, Computer Machinery and Intelligence. Turin was the British codebreaker and computing visionary, and from his 1950 paper came the idea of the Turing test. The test is both widely criticised for being inadequate and yet hugely influential. It's actually unclear what Alan Turing was getting at with the Turing test. So the Turing test was meant to say that um, if a machine fools you into thinking it is human, then, then what? Then what exactly was Turing's point? Is his point is therefore it is intelligent? But we know that doesn't make sense because MGONs are not intelligent. We know they're not intelligent. You can see the code. A shorthand definition of the Turing test evolved into a test to see if a computer can fool a human into thinking it's intelligent over a five-minute conversation. And what did MGONs' 90-minute argument have to say about that? What MGONs has to say about it, maybe, maybe it says either, one, it's easy to pass, and it has been passed, or two, you have to be careful with the rules so that something like MGON doesn't count. Or three, it's quite easy to pass the Turing test if you engage people with arguments on the internet. If you try to press buttons, and you could definitely see that on the internet, where people, people some, some people have a gift for it, I think, at, at, at pressing the buttons to drive other people nuts. In 2023, the co-owner of a Google-owned AI program called DeepMind said the Turing test was no longer a meaningful milestone. They proposed an updated version, a test to see if a program could take $100,000 and turn it into $1 million. Doing that, they said, would show artificial capable intelligence. So, in 2023, for some, turning a profit is the new Turing test. But in his 1950 paper, Turing offered a sample question to test computer intelligence. Please write me a sonnet on the subject of the Fort Bridge. The Fort Bridge being a cantilever railway bridge in Scotland that's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and was designed by a team who built the London Underground. It was a question and sentiment, a world away from making money or calling people an asshole. As a side note, Turing may well have failed the DeepMind version of the Turing test. During the Second World War, Turing believed silver would increase in value and invested heavily in it. Some say he bought over £150. He was right, silver's value shot up 80% by 1946, but Turing buried it, and due to changing seasons and a complex cipher, he couldn't locate his hidden silver and the value soon fell. To this day, Turing's silver remains lost.
no one's questioning Turing's genius. But then as now, how to measure intelligence, or what it even is, is disputed. There was a lot of debate back then, and still is, about the nature of intelligence. You know, there were people more or less defining intelligence as it's what a brain does, whatever that is, and a machine can never do it. So Turing was trying to have a different definition of intelligence. I think really that's what it is. It's a bit more like a thought experiment. But I don't think what he quite got get to grips with was how easy it would be to, to fool certain people. Mark Humphrey's chatbot neither made money or wrote sonnets on cantilever bridges, but it was at the vanguard of trolling. At the same time, Brad Templeton's online actions were deemed by some to fall short of the Netiquette rules he helped write. When I had been active on the network for a long time, I decided to create a, a special news group that, unlike most of them, which were free-for-all discussion, that was a moderated news group so that only what I approved went in it. And so it was much more like a publication than a discussion area. And it was for comedy. So people would send me all these jokes, and I would pick the ones that were funny in my editorial opinion uh, and put them out. And it, uh, people loved it. It was it, it became, in time, the most widely read thing on the Internet. I was the Elon Musk of the day. So, when Mark Humphreys was uploading MGONs, Brad Templeton was running a very popular online webpage. However, as you might expect, not all the jokes always pleased people. A, a series of bizarre bad luck caused a, a joke, a, a, actually a relatively mild ethnic joke about no Irish people in it, Scots and Jews in this particular joke. The joke was pretty crass and played an entire trope of Jews being cheap and Scots being murderous and cheap. It happened to come out at exactly the wrong time. It got someone very upset. And, and so he tried to get the news group removed, tried to get it. And there is nobody, you, you know, the people have this idea, oh, you can call up the office and ask them to do something. But of course, it was a community. There was no single owner. But he did this campaign against me. And first, everyone mostly laughed at his campaign. They said, that's not how it works here. You can't. There's nobody you can call and say, get rid of this. But that wasn't quite correct because he got enough attention in newspapers and with other things to actually get the uh, the news group banned at some of the universities it went through, including my alma mater, to temporarily shut it down. Local media pressured the university to ban the site and the university caved. And Brad's lapse in Nescus found a very modern punishment. So this is Sort of the one of the first instances of what um, you might call a cancel campaign today. That's a modern word, of course, for what went on. And um, the upshot of the campaign, though, was that he lost, uh, although it was emotionally stressful. Uh, and uh, that actually greatly built the popularity of the, uh, of the news group to become, as I said, the most widely read thing on the network uh, until the, it was replaced by internet sites like Yahoo!, Later in life, students took issue with Mark Humphreys for his online comments about Black Lives Matter. Uh, so so I, I had some students annoyed because I, uh, uh, I said Black Lives Matter has got thousands of people killed, which is true. I mean, I certainly I'll defend that argument. But that's an actual argument based that I'd love to debate. But the interesting thing is people didn't want to debate it. They just wanted to scream. I mean, the forms of human behaviour in the internet are absolutely extraordinary. So possibly for 30 years, nobody ever commented on my appearance in a negative way until I joined Twitter. 
I remember my jaw dropping the first time it happened, you know? You'd be, you'd be talking about, you'd be arguing about politics with some random collection of people on a thread, you know? And somebody would say, you look like a retarded pedo, you know, big fatty, whatever, you know, this kind of thing. And you're going, okay, well, you just block them, obviously, immediately. But then, you know, a month later, it happens again. Some other guy says something like that. That's a level of kind of aggression beyond Mgons. I mean, Mgons couldn't do it because there were no pictures back then. And maybe Mgons would have done it. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't realize if there were pictures. Today on the internet, everything from social movements that highlight racism to individuals' appearances seem to be up for debate. The content serves the medium. And the last thing the medium wants is a resolution to the conflict. So a debate online becomes, in practice, a collaboration between individuals to drive engagement for themselves and traffic for the platform. But does Mark think his online comments make him a troll then or now? I mean, had I engaged in a whole summer of M-Guns arguing angrily with angry strangers, maybe I could be convicted. <laughs> Of being a troll, but but I, I didn't. I suppose M. Gons could be the ancestor of some troll who who's just there to annoy you. But I, as I say, I wasn't trying to be mean or anything. I was trying to entertain my class, and then I put it online with no real thought as to who'd talk to it. I, I didn't I didn't do enough with M. Gons to be honest. I, I probably should have had more fun. Uh, but only for a laugh. I wasn't trying to be mean to anyone. I was just trying to entertain my, my classmates. But so, I guess, isn't that what trolls say, that they're trying to entertain themselves, you know? Yeah, well, it's almost serious now because, uh, you know, people get bullied to suicide and, and uh, uh, there's just a lot more horrible people. But I think there are worse people, far worse people, than it, even if M. Gons was serious, of course. M. Gons is not serious. But there, there's definitely far worse people uh, online now. MGONS didn't fulfil its potential for arguing with strangers, but the void was filled by willing humans. This, though, isn't inevitable. Contact Hypothesis argues that people with different beliefs won't just argue, but might actually get along. This idea of the Contact Hypothesis was developed back in the 1950s by social psychologist called Gordon Alport. This is Queen's University Belfast professor Rihanna Turner. And Gordon Alport was an American psychologist in the 1950s who looked at data across society, including how during the Second World War, when white American soldiers fought alongside black soldiers, these white soldiers were nine times more likely to have positive feeling towards black people in general than white soldiers in segregated companies. And basically, the argument that Gordon Alport made was that if you have contact between members of different groups, provided that contact is characterised by certain conditions, so if that contact is characterised by cooperation, um, common goals, then those things should help to promote more positive intergroup relations. And over the past, you know, whatever it is since then, 70 years, there's been huge volume of research on intergroup contact. It's, you know, probably one of the most prolifically researched areas of social psychology. What that research shows is a really robust relationship between having positive contact between different groups 
and lower levels of prejudice or more positive attitudes. So, 40 years after Carl Rogers worked to bring different sides of Northern Ireland's divide together, Professor Turner tested contact theory in Northern Ireland's online world. In the study in Northern Ireland, half of those were from a Catholic community background and half were Protestant community background. And we told them they were going to be interacting with somebody from the other community. And basically, this is going to be a kind of text only, kind of synchronous online interaction, a bit like using Facebook messengers, but where you're actually interacting with essentially the computer. So much like MGONs, unbeknownst to the person that entered the text, pre-written answers were returned. And like Eliza, relationships were developed. People genuinely believed they were having an interaction with somebody from the other group. In fact, we had some participants who afterwards said, oh, I think they were trying to flirt with me and, you know, can you give me their number, that, that kind of thing. Afterwards, got them to complete a questionnaire about their perceptions of the other community. And what we found is they were less anxious about interacting with somebody from the other group in the future. And they also held more positive attitudes towards the other community. So when groups apply Brad Templeton's netiquette rules and engage with others online, they'll get over some of their differences. But most social media sites don't encourage that. We're siloed into echo chambers and rewarded for arguments with further interactions and notifications. Are there any spaces online that are working? But one conversation I had when I was talking about this research to a colleague was that they had met a lot of people online via gaming. So, and they had met lots of people from different countries and different backgrounds via, via gaming because, you know, you, you're doing this common thing together that you all love and often you end up having conversations that are not related to the game and you do get to know people from different backgrounds from all over the world and you're perhaps less likely to be talking into that echo chamber as, I don't know, on say Twitter or Facebook. And if we can interact with others from outside our bubble, the upshots can be huge. So there's evidence that if you are interacting with people from a range of different backgrounds, that's associated with better problem-solving skills, uh, higher levels of creativity, better resilience, better social skills. So there's even evidence that they're more likely to be concerned about the environment and engage in, you know, environmentally friendly behaviours. So the benefits, you know, it's really quite powerful. This feels to most of us as logical. If we're nice to each other, everyone benefits. And anyone who'd listened to this podcast is intelligent, obviously. So you won't engage in online arguments. But often, to be an intelligent person, one wants to feel actively intelligent and not just observe discourse on the sidelines. And you are combative online. And you've said in response to people's criticisms of that, well, I just want to have a debate. But the debate itself never happens. And nothing is resolved. Exactly like your MGONs thing. It's a, the, the, a conversation for an hour and a half happens and nothing is resolved. The, you don't even know what the argument was about. <laughs> well, that's the funniest thing about it, which is there is no, there's no topic. It just launches off into, 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 into argument. And it doesn't take long before they're at each other's throats, or so it seems. Almost the only point where I would generalise is I think there's less appetite for debate in, in, uh, now than 30 years ago. And I think that's depressing. 
And so we ended up living in Mgonza's internet, where there's always someone wrong somewhere and nobody follows the netiquette rules. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please consider subscribing to the Irish Times. It's just one euro for the first month. If subscribing isn't for you, there's still loads of great writing on philosophy, media and culture on theirishtimes.com that you might be interested in that isn't behind a paywall. This podcast was made by me, Enzo Dowd, along with John Casey and Head of Audio in the Irish Times, Declan Conlon. Artwork is by Paul Scott and the music is by Kirk Ozamo and Sergei Sheremisov. <laughs>